Hi, welcome back to another episode of Real World Serverless, a podcast where I speak with real world practitioners and get their stories from the changes. Today, I'm joined by Ben Smith from Emerald Cloud Labs. Hey, man, welcome to the show. Hey, Jan, thank you for having me. So I read about a blog post that you guys wrote on the AWS blog about how Emerald Cloud Lab is revolutionizing the laboratory testing using AWS and the Lambda functions features pretty heavily. So that really piqued my interest and got in touch with you guys and see if I can get an inside peek into what's actually going on. So before we start, do you mind just maybe giving us a quick introduction to what does Emerald Cloud Lab do and maybe your role inside the company? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the goal of Emerald Cloud Lab is basically to make science uh, more reproducible, make it move faster, and make it um, less toil-based. And so the way we do that is scientists are able to program, write code in Mathematica that then is translated through our system into actual experiments that are run in the lab. And right now we have about over a hundred instruments that can do many, many different types of experiments from synthetic chemistry to analysis and biology. Um, and you can really run an entire company, the uh, entire biotech company solely through running these remote experiments and then getting the data back to you. And so obviously that requires a lot of uh, software engineering. And, and so um, I'm the VP of engineering at Emerald where I oversee the software engineering team um, and also IT. And then we have another team called Scientific Computing, which is focused on kind of doing a lot of the machine learning and analysis of the data. Okay. So I'm not coming from a scientific background. So when you talk about experiments, maybe help me understand what sort of experiments are you talking about here? You know, could it be something like analyzing the genome sequence for COVID-19 or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. If you kind of think of the analogy with AWS, where AWS took all of the, the pieces that it takes to run a modern, you know, a modern web application, and they broke it down into storage and compute and network, we've tried to do the same thing with science. And so you can imagine that if you're trying to find a new uh, drug, what you want to do is you want to be able to synthesize the drug. And so that means you may take some um, uh, some different compounds and mix them together. You then want to make sure that you've made something that's very pure, so it's not going to cause any um, any contamination issues. And so you may run it through some machines that can check that you've actually produced the substance you expect to produce. And then you want to expose it to, um, to either proteins or cells or other things to see if it actually has the intended function. And so we've basically broken that out into uh, various like low-level building blocks, like mix these two things together, put this thing into a microscope, grow these cells that you can then combine and to run your actual experiment. Okay, so do the labs come up with the experiment, the design of the experiment, and then you guys essentially become the execution arm of the lab, uh, and so that the, you would take those uh, designs from the client and then you execute the experiments themselves, and then you do some computations, or do you provide the sort of like the computing side of things uh, as a separate business to the running the experiments? Yeah, great question. So. Um... Exactly. The idea is that we want to make it so that our users can just think about science and then they have some idea that they think some chemical will do something good. They then can write code that describes how to synthesize that, how to um, check that it's been made, how to you know check that it works. 
We then um, use computing to turn that code that they've written almost through a compiler into something that's executable in the lab in an efficient way. And then we, we actually run all of those experiments and they can take anywhere from a few hours to a few days. And then the results are given back to them in a structured way so that they can then do large scale analysis or machine learning or, or kind of whatever they need to do on those results. Okay, so you are running those experiments, you produce a whole bunch of data, and then uh, you are then allowing your customers to then run analysis on those results in machine learning stuff. So in that case, do you provide a sort of computing platform for the machine learning models to run, or do you actually uh, run and build the machine learning models for your clients? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So we do both. So uh, we provide a platform for them to run their code if that's what they choose to do. But a lot of our customers, you know, are really kind of more interested in, in the biology or chemistry than in kind of the computer science or machine learning side. And so we have pre-baked analyses, if you will, that they can then run on the data that, that they've generated to give them uh, scientifically interesting results. Right, right. Because uh, I guess a very common thing you hear about uh, from the machine learning world is this uh, ML ops, uh, which obviously, you know, is a very specific set of, uh, I guess, DevOps kind of things that that's being applied to machine learning uh, workloads. And uh, you know, hear a lot about, uh, you know, these data scientists are great with uh, building up models, but not so much with the operational side of things and they're struggling with that. So I guess you're kind of providing an abstraction over all of those things uh, for your customers. I'm actually quite curious in that case then. Um, so with machine learning, you know, oftentimes when I hear people talk about you know, what they're doing, it feels like quite a specialized thing depending on your industry, your particular workload, and having to understand a lot about the ins and outs of the data you're working with. So in this case, uh, you know, someone just giving you an experiment with all this data and then telling you to give us some common set of uh, machine learning models. Uh, how well does that actually work in terms of uh, you know, giving you useful insights where I'm just like a third party, not really experts in the particular domain that you are doing experiments on? How does that actually work? Yeah, great question. Um, and when I say machine learning, I think this is kind of common when we talk about machine learning. I mean a whole spectrum from like very simple, like predicting if we're going to be out of a certain type of pipette a week from now and we should reorder it kind of scheduling problems to things like we actually do things like uh, physical simulation. So we can tell like we think your experiment is going to work or is not going to work before you run it all the way up to very. And so those are kind of more generalized all the way up to very specialized, like you're talking about, where we've run many, many thousands or tens of thousands of particular types of experiments. And so you can, um, we can build kind of a library where we say, we've seen things that look similar to what you're trying to do before, and here are the ways it worked, and here are the ways it didn't work. And where this really comes into play is in a process what's, what's called design of experiment. And so you can, sorry, I, I don't mean to be like too technical with it, but you can, you can imagine that you're a scientist, you want to mix two things together and you don't know how much of thing one or thing two you should mix together. And so oftentimes what you do is you just try 20 different combinations to see what comes out. And that can be very slow and expensive because it actually has to run in the lab. It uses real reagents, which can be expensive. It uses instruments, which can be expensive. And so if you're able to simulate ahead of time what you think is going to happen, that can help you cut down kind of the 20 down to two or three. And then you can actually try those in the lab and see if your model worked well. 
Okay, okay. So I guess in a day and age where there's a lot of uh, hype around different materials being used for batteries and things like that, I guess this is exactly the kind of thing that uh, could be really powerful as the you know, different scientists teams are trying to work out what's the next breakthrough in the battery technologies. Um, so in this case, how does um, like serverless come into play? Why do you guys settle on using Lambda for your compute as opposed to you know, containers or running just raw virtual machines? Yeah, great question. So um, we do a lot of stuff in the lab um, that's uh, very bursty. And it's everything. We have kind of three major use cases that, that um, we were trying to solve. So the first is just making sure the lab is working. And so we had a script system that would run on a VM and every minute or five minutes or whatever, it would go through, check to make sure like all of the temperatures of all the refrigerators were correct, that nobody left the door open, that we had enough of, um, you know, of the supplies we needed and we didn't need to buy more things, all of that kind of stuff. And that was set on a, like a timer to run. And what we what we started to see is that basically as the lab grew and as we were running more and more um, experiments, that, that just keeping up with that kind of logistical side of thing was starting to take more and more time. And we didn't like the fact that like every day we would have to come back and shard our system again and then move it to multiple VMs. And so we decided, you know, we, we want something that can just kind of scale infinitely as we as we grow without any work from us. The other thing we were running into is our unit testing system was growing very, very quickly. And so we run a lot of tests because this is used for drug discovery. It's very important to us that everything be, um, you know, exactly right. And so we, we run a lot of quality tests pretty much constantly. And again, as the scale of the lab was growing, we had a VM cluster of about four machines that were running all these tests before. We needed 10 times that. And then, you know, next year we were going to need another 10 times that. And then the last piece is, is, as you point out, it's kind of these customer analysis jobs where they want to run big machine learning projects or even do things like some of the instruments produce very, very large data sets, you know, hundreds of gigabytes of data, and we need to run downsampling or other kind of like data reduction jobs on them. And they're very, very bursty because we don't know when a customer is going to come in and, and want to run a, bit, a big job like this. So I was a big fan of Lambda, but how we actually ended up architecting this is we went with Fargate. And the reason we went with Fargate is because most of our code, as I mentioned at the very beginning, runs in Mathematica, and we're able to containerize Mathematica and then run that in Fargate. And that gives us kind of the scalability, the burstability that we're looking for uh, in, a, in a pretty cool way. Right, right. Because my next question was going to be, you know, doing machine learning on Lambda, you're going to run into a lot of the constraints like the size of the deployment package and things like that, which means uh, oftentimes people have end up using containers as the format for the Lambda functions anyway, just so that they can, you know, load a two, two gigabyte uh, machine learning model into their Lambda runtime. So I guess in this case, uh, you're just using Lambda function as part of the pipeline that ingests data and then the push them into your Fargate, uh, which is doing the actual computation and the machine learning training. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, so what we do is we have a RDS cluster that basically stores all of the data. So every time an experiment finishes or, or anything like that, the status of all that is stored in RDS. We feed that into a Kinesis stream. So every time anything changes in the lab, it goes through this Kinesis stream. And then we use Lambda to process the Kinesis stream to figure out if we need to trigger a new 
Fargate jobs off of that. And so, for example, if somebody sets up a machine learning model that's like anytime anyone finishes a running what's called an HPLC is an experiment we do a, a lot, they can set it up so that they trigger their machine learning model to update off of any time one of those experiments finish. Right, got it. And I uh, guess that's where the sort of lambdas uh, event triggers become really powerful, really useful. And I guess that's one of the things that uh, Fargate is still kind of missing right now is that event-driven, I guess, the programming model that you got with Lambda. It's great they can run all these ad hoc tasks on Fargate, but then the, you still have to have something that uh, calls uh, Fargate to start a task, uh, which I guess that I've, I've seen quite a lot of people use a Lambda for that, where you use Lambda for the event trigger, and then that all it does is just you know, start a Fargate task. Yeah, that's exactly the direction we've gone. Um, I think it's worked pretty well. I agree that it would be like, like there's a lot of pieces to this and I think that's okay, but it does make kind of debugging a little bit more complicated because you now have to ask, did the event get into Kinesis? Did the Lambda job trigger, trigger properly? Did it trigger the Fargate job properly? Did the, you know, did the Fargate job run correctly? And so there is a little bit of kind of a debugging overhead there. Okay. And uh, what about uh, other challenges? Uh, what were some of the biggest challenges you had uh, to get this whole thing up and running? Yeah, definitely. So there, there were two main challenges. The first one was kind of cultural, um, which is that this was the first real, like the first real distributed system, I would say we built at Emerald. And so we had the standard, prior to this, we had the standard architecture of like, we had a front end JavaScript web application that called into a Go, you know, a Go backend and that talked to RDS. And that was great. But this was the first time we had, you know, we had an event bus, we had a bunch of Lambda jobs, we had a bunch of Fargate jobs. And getting people to start to think in terms of managing and uh, deploying and testing distributed systems was, was definitely kind of a cultural shift for us. And then the second piece was um, just scale. Like I mentioned earlier that the reason we wanted to do this is because the... Um, you know, because the traffic was very bursty and we were tired of, you know, having to add VMs and reshard all the time. Fargate is great in the sense that it gives us all the compute we need, but it still depends on a bunch of other things. And all of those other things, it's now hitting much, much harder. And so um, there's, uh, we basically, we've gone in the last maybe year from running, you know, like I said, we were probably running four or five of these VMs, and now we're running something like 70 to 100,000 of these jobs a week. And so they're just hammering it, all of the downstream dependencies. And it can be sometimes very hard to figure out, you know, what the, the failure modes are there. I guess uh, in this case, this is where things like uh, observability tooling becomes uh, super important. Um, what are you guys uh, using to, I guess, get some visibility into what's going on inside your serverless uh, workloads? Yeah, great question. So we use Honeycomb throughout our back. So we start basically everything that happens on the front end. We generate a trace ID and we can trace that all the way through. That works quite well. I'm super happy with Honeycomb. Um, I've used X-Ray in the past and was not, you know, not terribly happy with it. So I, I like Honeycomb a lot. And then um, a lot of it, to be honest, is we pull, and this is going to sound really silly, but we pull the key information from the CloudWatch logs into our database, into our system that the scientists can see. And the reason we do this is because a lot of times the scientists are the ones who are, you know, submitting these jobs. They're the ones who are saying like, oh, you know, this, 
this material has an expiration day of a week. And so if we don't have any new ones, we need to know it's going to expire a week from now and, and, and have ordered things. And they're not super comfortable with like distributed systems or logging into AWS to see, see CloudWatch logs and things like that. And so we try to pull as much of that information back into our database and our system that they're comfortable with so that they can debug themselves. Okay, so that's going to be interesting, especially if you've got the distributed transactions uh, that spans across the Lambda function and the uh, Fargate as well. So do, I guess that uh, you then just ingest all the logs from CloudWatch and then aggregate them based on the trace ID manually and then boot them into some kind of a, like a separate view that the scientists can use. Um, no, so what we're trying to do, I, I mean, that probably would be better than what we do, but what we're trying to do is, so if you imagine what's happening is that there's a, the system to, to actually trigger the job, that the event comes through, Lambda runs, it then triggers the Fargate job. That's owned by the software engineering team, and they're comfortable kind of logging in, looking at AWS logs. And so anything about my, my job was not triggered goes to them. What we're trying to get the scientists is they've written code that is now running in that Fargate container, and we're trying to get them the output of that so they can then uh, debug the code they wrote. And so we're just exporting the logs that, that are from their code running. Right, right. Okay, gotcha. And I guess uh, this is also uh, brings up another interesting question, which is uh, now you are taking job from a scientist and then just running it in your infrastructure. Uh, how do you make sure and how do you, I guess, uh, make sure it's secure? You know, they're not, uh, not able to steal information about your environment and uh, uh, do something malicious with them. Yeah, this is a great question that we've we've spent a lot of time with. So what we have is we have three separate uh, EKS clusters that have um, different uh, they they have different IAM roles, execution IAM roles, and they have different uh, they're in different VPCs, and the VPCs have different network access. And so one of the clusters is allowed, for example, to talk to our lab network. It has a VPN set up. And in order to submit jobs to that, you have to have the, like the very highest credentials. You need to be an internal employee of ECL and you need to be someone on the team who should be doing things like that. The, on the other end is the, the cluster that go that customer jobs are submitted to. And so this is basically, it's in a separate VPC that has no connectivity to any of our other VPCs or our lab network. And we make sure that the, basically the execution role is just completely pared down. It has no access to, you know, secrets manager or any of our internal, you know, our internal resources in AWS. And uh, then the fact that it's a container is actually really nice because uh, we throw it away at the end of a job and we never mix customer jobs in the same container. And so really they're kind of locked into, you know, their one execution environment. Right, right. Gotcha. I guess in that case, there's not much they can actually do in, uh, to your environment. Uh, what about can they do anything like, I don't know, uh, try to run the uh, Bitcoin mining or something like that? Something uh, kind of dodgy. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so this is the challenge of we're allowing them to write Mathematica code. Mathematica, if you've ever worked in it, you can run. There's a lot of stuff you can do in Mathematica. It probably has like a mine Bitcoin function that will will do it. The good news here is that a we're running a like a B two B business, so we're selling to like very large pharmaceutical companies. They have we we don't have like free accounts or anything like that, so that's not really an issue. And then our model is that we charge them based on concurrent computation usage. And so if they want to pay us to run their Bitcoin mining, we're you know like I don't think that's a good use of anybody's time or money, but it doesn't. It's not a problem for us. 
Right, right, gotcha. So if they make a mistake or you know, something happened maliciously, then the, at least they're going to be paying for the, the amount of execution time that the, you end up running, which is what you end up paying for AWS. But I guess you just got like a margin on top of uh, what you pay AWS uh, for the amount of time that those uh, Fargate uh, task runs for, right? Yeah, so generally what we do, uh, kind of the business model, the contracts are fairly large, like we're running very big, complicated experiments. And so the, the cost of Fargate is is fairly low by comparison. So as long as someone's not like attempting to actively abuse it, we haven't had an issue where where the cost is a, is a major problem. Okay, okay, gotcha. Um, so I guess in this case, uh, you know, you've been running this for a while. What would you say are some of the biggest wins uh, of using this stack versus uh, running you know, loads of uh, infrastructure yourself. Uh, and you mentioned earlier that uh, there's less of the, you know, every couple of months we have to split our stack again and uh, just upsizing, just that being able to handle this uh, burst in traffic. Uh, was there anything else you know, that you consider as a major wins for this architecture? Yeah, absolutely. So definitely the scalability with the caveat, as I mentioned earlier, that your downstream components have to be able to handle it. But the two other things I've really liked are, I really like the fact that the container gets thrown away and there's no, like we used to have always have these problems of like the VMs would, their disk would fill up or there'd be like some corruption or like, you know, there's basically the state of the VM that over time, especially if you're running kind of customer stuff, is problematic. It's also very nice to get the segmentation where if we were running, you know, a cluster of four VMs and uh, it would be much harder to make sure like there's a VM dedicated for each customer. And so the, the segmentation of the container is super nice. And then the last piece I really like is the testability. Um, and this may just be that we we're now using better practices, but our entire um, stack from the database to Kinesis to Lambda to, to Fargate, we're able to spin up programmatically. And so our integration tests actually spin up an entire copy of that, run the full integration test and then tear it down. And I know that's the, it's, it's possible as well with VMs. It's, it was just, um, perhaps we've just done it better this time. Yeah, that's quite a common, I guess, well, maybe not quite common, but it's becoming more and more common, I guess, uh, as a practice uh, for serverless teams to bring up an entire stack for running CI CD pipelines or when you're doing a feature development work, because uh, things like Kinesis streams and DynamDB tables, it's just so easy to provision, so quick to provision and so easy to tear down afterwards. Not like when you've got RDS databases, they need to have a lot of uh, dedicating infrastructure around it, like VPCs and security groups, and it takes a long time to sort of provision and uh, be ready. So I think that side of things that really helps to bring the drive home this, I guess, new way of doing things where the whole environment itself is just ephemeral. You know, we bring it up where we need it and we just throw it away so we don't have to worry about, like I said, problems with uh, long running virtual machines, which uh, I remember so many of those things where you'll be spending a week or a month debugging some kind of memory issue, uh, memory fragmentation that when the machine runs there for too long and uh, those problems are so hard to figure out. And uh, now with uh, things like Fargate and Lambda functions, they're so short-lived, you just don't have those, those kind of problems. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, big fan of that. So we've now basically containerized everything and have no more VMs. And so even for our for our non-Fargate tasks, we use EKS and have been super happy with that just because of exactly what you say, the ephemerality and the ability to just throw it away and get a new one when, when things go wrong. Okay, so in that case, you're using both function as a service offering as well as the serverless containers within AWS. Uh, are there any sort of things that you would like to see from AWS to improve the user experience for these services? 
Yeah, absolutely. The the number one is just parity between Fargate and EC2. And so I look at the at the offerings of machines you can get on EC2, and um, then I compare that with what you can get on Fargate, and it just it, it makes me very sad. And so in particular, things like lots more RAM. So right now, uh, I believe it goes up to about four vCPU and 32 gigs of RAM, something like that. But we would love that. I mean, there are EC2 instances that go up to, you know, a terabyte of RAM and we would love that. We would love ability to access like GPUs for, for some of the machine learning model. Yeah, basically just parity with with all of the EC2 offerings is number one. And then number two, and this may just be a lack of, of my knowledge, but I sometimes, I, I have this mental model in my head of if I have a web service that's responding to external requests, I want to put it in EKS. And if I have this kind of bursty async load, I want to put it in Fargate. But I sometimes have these kind of middle ground where I have like bursty web services that I want to be able to respond well to external requests, but not have a bunch of um, warm-up time and things like that. And, and I feel like it, it just hasn't hit, hit its stride in Fargate. Okay. A lot of people would use uh, Lambda for those kind of APIs. Obviously, Lambda's got its own so cold start issues, uh, but I guess depending on what your latency requirements are and how warm those Lambda workers end up being in production, I think in production, most of the time, you don't really see a lot of cold starts just because the traffic kind of just keeps the workers warm anyway. But yeah, I'd love to see more being done to, to improve the, the cold start time. And I know they introduced the provision concurrencies a couple of years ago, which makes Lambda, you know, you can, you can have now long running Lambda workers, but that kind of defeats the purpose a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, but I guess, no, they are bound by some constraints around uh, how fast they're able to boost up the new environment. Uh, uh, but yeah, one of those things that's come back uh, quite a few times. The, the GPU thing is really interesting. I've had quite a few customers uh, who's uh, been asking for the same thing because they are doing machine learning stuff and uh, doing that on CPU is just nowhere near the level of uh, efficiency you're going to get on GPU. I didn't realize they don't have it on Fargate yet, but I'm sure that's sort of something uh, that must be on the roadmap somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. And it's possible that I'm just behind the times on these things and, and they've recently re released it. But uh, yeah, that would be fantastic. Okay, so um, I think those are all the questions that I've got. Uh, before we go, Ben, do you have anything else that you'd like to share? Maybe if Emerald Labs is uh, hiring or maybe there's something that we can go and read about you know, what you guys are doing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're definitely hiring. We're hiring across uh, all engineering teams, back end, front end, uh, DevOps, um, security as well. And there's a post on the AWS blog startup post about what we've done, about what we're doing with serverless. And then you're also welcome to check out www.emeraldcloudlab.com to learn more about it. Okay, I'll get those uh, links on the show notes. And uh, if there's a job spec, then feel free to share with me and I'll put it on the show notes as well. Once again, thank you so much for taking the time to talking with me today. And uh, I hope to catch up with you in person, hopefully at reInvent at some point. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Cheers, Kate. Bye-bye. Bye. So that's it for another episode of Real World Serverless. To access the show notes, please go to realworldserverless.com. If you want to learn how to build production-ready serverless applications, please check out my upcoming courses at productionreadyserverless.com. And I'll see you guys next time.